hope for me with the images that I create is that they'll reach an individual person, touch them in a way, emotionally, uh, curiosity, awe, just being in awe of something is, is an amazingly powerful emotion and, and tool to pull people in. Thank you for joining us again on the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast. This is producer Emmy Reed filling in for Kristen Oxford as she recorded this podcast episode, then headed out to live her Ernest Shackleton dreams on a cruise to Antarctica. Hopefully with a few more creature comforts and an intact ship. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Although sometimes it feels like we're left speechless when viewing the spectacular photos and film of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. People from across the globe who have never visited this remarkable region feel a connection simply from the story these images tell. From a bird's eye view of Grand Prismatic Spring, to a sweet moment of a grizzly bear sow and her cubs, to the sheer vastness that is Greater Yellowstone, the moments captured via camera inspire us all. On today's episode, we're thrilled to welcome Ronan Donovan, conservation storyteller and National Geographic photographer. From cutting his teeth on the 2016 Yellowstone edition of National Geographic magazine, to focusing on the relationship between people and wolves across the globe, Ronan uses his brilliant photography and cinematography to share intimate scenes of wildlife and the importance of conservation. We chat about his favorite moments in the field, the elusive greater Yellowstone species he has yet to capture on film, and the power of awe. We also have a surprise giveaway at the end of the show, so stick around to find out how you can participate. All right, let's dive into conservation storytelling through a lens with Ronan Donovan. My name is Ronan Donovan, and I work mostly in kind of the education space. It's, it's become visual storytelling, photography, film work, but it's all surrounding conservation issues, and I use those visual tools to educate people about challenges and successes and things to look forward to in the future. Wonderful. And tell us a bit about how you found photography. Was it always on your radar as a potential career? It wasn't really. I mean, I, I look back and I liked taking pictures. Um, I took a black and white film class in high school my freshman year, but the pictures were terrible. I mean, it was like my friends, it was like pose stuff. It was just random, you know, the frozen leaf on the ground, kind of the classic stuff, I guess. Uh, and then never really revisited it. I had kind of little small point and shoot digital, I remember, and I would take pictures when I traveled. But it wasn't like I didn't, it was just kind of like a visual diary. And like even in college, nothing visual in any of the studies that I did. And then it wasn't until after college, I almost went into a road of finance in uh, Boston. It was kind of like a peer pressure thing. Felt like that was the track. My partner at the time was getting a job in Boston. Some friends got jobs in Boston. My dad got me some interviews. It was kind of like a easy maybe. And then after experiencing the interviews and what the job descriptions were, it was an easy no. Mm. Um, was offered both jobs and then just said no way. And then uh, bounced around in New Hampshire and Maine, worked in the lobster industry. And then got back to, like initially I studied wildlife management at school, at, at university, and then switched to business. 
Um, but I w- went back to the wildlife management, got an internship in Yosemite National Park. And that was probably like 2006, right after college, maybe six, seven months after college. And I bought a film camera before I went, just like a used Canon with a couple used lenses on eBay for like 400 bucks. And had the idea that I was like, oh, I'm going to go on this trip. I'm going get to a, get a camera and see what happens. And then that was just, that was it. That was like the obsession was on both with, you know, the wildlife research and with photography. I mean, what a better place to get into film photography than Yosemite, following yeah. in the footsteps of Ansel Adams and, yeah. Yeah, I think that that, it, it offered so much. Mm-hmm. Like, there was so much opportunity in terms of, you know, there's an Ansel Adams gallery yeah. in the Valley of Yosemite. The valley itself is stunning and breathtaking. And then I was doing this Spotted Owl project, and we were catching and banding and monitoring the life cycle of spotted owls in old growth forest with sequoia trees. It was absolutely amazing and just kind of this major eye-opening and, and turning point for me having grown up in rural Vermont and, you know, rural kid outside all the time, walk through the woods along the brook a mile and a half to the bus stop both ways every day uh, with our dogs. And, you know, it was a lovely kind of close to nature upbringing, but you know, east of the Mississippi is just heavily manicured by Europeans and the forests have been logged three times plus going on succession um, of of that kind of management, no large predators. So yeah, going to Yosemite was just, wasn't amazing. And it is still. Yeah, it's a really remarkable place. So film camera in hand, you're working with wildlife, you're out west. Um, what then drew you to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Yeah, my dad brought me out to first the Winterbur Mountains when I was probably like 12 or 13. My dad, he's 80 now, still every year leads an hour bound course um, in uh, sailing around Hurricane Island in Maine. And he did that full time for a few years before I was born. Um, But so he's kind of comes from that thought of the outdoor experiential learning. And so my brother and I were raised kind of in that school. And so he brought me out to the winds. We, we just picked a map or picked a lake on, on a map and just like bushwhacked in and it was, you know, passing bighorn sheep and catching beautiful fish and setting up a base camp and kind of just doing these big circuits up to these other lakes and you know, in encountering like chipmunks that hadn't seen people and they just kind of come right up to you and not because they'd been fed, but because they hadn't seen people. Um, and just, yeah, just kind of this wilderness scale and potential and possibility that I had never experienced before, um, in the East. And so that was planted early on as an early teen. And then, you know, after Yosemite, uh, bounced around doing different wildlife biology jobs all around the world. And it was a, partner and I that moved to Polson, Montana. Um, so that was the first town. We didn't even, we'd never heard of it. We looked on the map and the next town south is Ronan, Montana mm-hmm. or Ronan, Ronan. as mm-hmm. they say in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was kind of fortuitous, interesting. Um, and that was probably 2008, 2007, 2008. And then bounced around Kalispell, Polson, Helena, and then moved to Bozeman in 2014. Wow. So you're in Montana. 
you've made your way to Bozeman. At what point do you transition from working in wildlife management to considering yourself more of a photographer professionally? It was probably on and off for the eight years that I was working in you know, wildlife field biology work. So I was doing stuff with spotted owls, marine mammals, chimpanzees. I worked for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for a couple summers um, doing non-game baseline surveys across the state. So it was in eastern Montana and then western Montana, and that was all little critters. Um, and all throughout, I was crafting and kind of honing the photography skill in kind of the basic, like how to use a camera, how to get interesting pictures, you know, how to keep things in focus, composure or composition, all these things, kind of the basics. Um, but I didn't really know anything about like storytelling and how to actually use pictures in a way to engage people, create awe and wonder, but also curiosity and then to educate and pull people in. So there was kind of this restlessness that I had with photography and, and video too. I was doing both, but just for fun. Um, and at some point it was this kind of burning desire to put the pictures and the imagery to work in some way. And how do I, how do I do that? How do I get people to care about, you know, sage grouse that I was filming their breeding behavior and taking pictures and how do I get these pictures to actually be useful and helpful towards conservation? You know, at the same time I'm reading and seeing and traveling around the world and seeing the ecological decline that has been happening um, for the last, you know, hundreds, if not longer, years um, under this idea of kind of economics and capitalism and perpetual growth model that isn't sustainable in any natural sense. So I was kind of having this worldview shift or just education that was happening. Um, and I wanted to use photography to somehow contribute to ecological education and to conservation. And so I was kind of having these like little, little assignments maybe that would come up. I did some bird photography. That was my first assignment was for a magazine in Africa when I was there doing chimpanzee research. I, I photograph, I love all the things. Uh, I'm a true naturalist in the sense that like, I'm very intrigued by any natural processes. I don't just focus on the big stuff or some people just focus on birds, but, um, you know, I love everything, insects, reptiles, amphibians, all of it. And so I had a couple of these small assignments when I was, this is 2011, um, kind of still considered a biologist by profession, but, you know, I had this pitch, this story about these five endemic bird species that only live in these papyrus swamps throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And so I went out and it was really fun, just kind of this like scavenger hunt to try to find some of the birds were easy. Some of them were really hard, um, and really localized. And so I was traveling around Uganda mostly is where I did the story. And so it was kind of, that felt like the style that I wanted to do in terms of like combining text photography. There was some maps involved with some science, you know, the foundation is always kind of empirical data and science and research and, um, so that was, there was a taste there of how to use photography in the way that felt impactful. Several years ago, you worked on the National Geographic magazine Yellowstone edition. Uh, how did you decide which wildlife to focus on for that project? 
and how to capture those shots and how to really tell that story. That was my first assignment for National Geographic magazine, uh, 2014. Um, I was kind of on the radar of an editor that worked for the magazine. I had done a year of research in Uganda studying chimpanzees using photography as a research tool for a professor who asked me also to, hey, could you climb trees that, you know, these fig trees that chimps will visit for weeks at a time while they're ripened, um, while the fruits are ripened, and photograph and video them kind of in their natural environment up high instead of being on the ground looking up at kind of these dark silhouetted figures, which is the normal view. And then that professor forwarded those pictures on uh, to an editor at National Geographic magazine, Kathy Moran, and she was in charge of, basically she was editing this entire issue for National Geographic that was solely on the Grady Ellison ecosystem. It came out in 2016. And so they had sent a team of photographers. Uh, gosh, there was, I don't know, six photographers or so. Some of these big names in our world that I looked up to for my young days, Nick Nichols, um, Erica Larson, Charlie Hamilton James, um, Joe Reese, Drew Rush. Um, yeah, just kind of this amazing cast of, of photographers that had been working in the conservation wildlife space for decades. And so I, I wasn't initially part of that team. It was maybe like six months into the project. Nick's long-term assistant had decided to take another job in Gabon. Like it was like a five-year contract or something like that. And so Nick needed like very quickly a camera trap assistant. And I had learned camera traps um, and kind of had a basic understanding. These were the days when camera traps were kind of like you'd buy some stuff off the shelf and then you had to like cobble together and like you had to like change some wiring to, in order to get Canon cameras to talk to Nikon flash. And I don't know, it was just, you had to make your own boxes. It was just kind of like this fun little handyman type project. Um, and so I had some of that skill, just the baseline. And so I signed a two week contract. Um, the editor said, you're going to go out and have a first date with Nick in Yellowstone, um, and see if you guys get along and see if it works. And it was just a really magical time for me just to be part of this amazing team, to be working towards this really amazing and inspiring publication that I grew up leafing through the pages of National Geographic like a lot of people. And so I, I was initially there just to assist Nick. And that was a kind of myriad of different projects. Like Nick was focused on bison, grizzly bears. He was doing some wolf stuff. Um, but he had, you know, all these camera trap locations. And my job was to scout, set up, and maintain the camera traps. And so, you know, we had some at these kind of carcass sites. Um, we had really special permitting that allowed us to do this. You can't put camera traps out in, in Yellowstone National Park. But we had really special permitting that was gotten through National Geographic in Washington, D.C. Um, we put them out at six wolf dens, put cameras out at six wolf dens through the parks. That was working with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, Doug Smith at the time and his team. Um, and then there was this site called the Bear Bathtub that we also put some cameras out, 
Nick was doing photos, I was doing video, um, but it was my job to go out and kind of scout and maintain all that. Um, and then I was asked to, f- to kind of contribute my own piece, um, photographing wolves and working with the Yellowstone Wolf Project. So how did it feel to have signed on to this project in sort of an assistant capacity, and then suddenly you're being asked to contribute work um, centered on wolves, which are one of the absolute icons of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? It was a, it was a dream come true. I mean, it was being around so many inspiring storytellers, photographers, and then embedding with all of these equally inspiring scientists and professional Park Service employees who have dedicated their lives to better understand the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. You know, Doug Smith and Carrie Gunther, Doug with the Wolf Project, Carrie with the the Bear Management Project. The, you know, they were just and are incredible um, champions for unraveling kind of the complexities of the natural world in also the human-dominated landscape. You know, they would work in Yellowstone, but they fully understood that. Yellowstone is just a piece of the Great Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, and so it was, I mean, it was the most exciting time for me in photography and kind of this new career that I wanted that was seemingly attainable. Um, and having these really, you know, the first time I had these really in-depth conversations about photography and specifically how to create an image that would tell the story about whatever the piece was that we're trying to convey and then using all these tools to, to do that, you know, using all these custom camera trap systems that were designed in this cool engineering basement at National Geographic at the headquarters in DC and, you know, working with Charlie Hamilton James to try to rewire a GoPro to make it into a camera trap to be able to like submerge it in this bare bathtub and try to get some different pictures and um, kind of this, just this fun, exciting, curious, expansive time for me where you're just all of a sudden around these people that are way ahead of you and can teach you a lot about this craft that, you know, I'd been kind of tinkering with, but didn't have like a community. Mm-hmm. And so my community was science and researchers and, um, but to be around like the visual artists and storytellers and creators was just, you know, it's, it was amazing. It, it was, it will stand out as just kind of this really amazing time capsule. Um, that was really impactful for me. Yeah, probably not a lot of folks who can trace the beginning of their photographic careers to a National Geographic project. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. But I have to ask, what what is a bear bathtub? Is that like a place where bears are going and splish splashing in the water? It is, yeah. The bear bathtub is this really fascinating physical feature in kind of the heart of Yellowstone. And it was discovered... um, by Kerry Gunther. He had a caller out, a, a radio caller out on a grizzly bear, and they're programmed to drop off before they go into hibernation. There's no use to have a caller in hibernation. And so they, they pop off in the fall. And there was a caller that had popped off, and you know, this was not a GPS caller, it was a radio caller. And so, in order to find it, you have to fly and with a radio receiver on the plane and basically kind of do like a grid in the area where maybe that bear had hung out when the collar popped off. And so he got a signal in this area and went in to recover this collar. And it's this really beautiful kind of small, you know, maybe 
50 feet by 80 feet um, little meadow at high elevation. And there's an upwelling spring. It's not heated, but it's a little spring. And there's, he noticed there was some kind of trails, game trails, animal trails that were coming into this through the grass, coming into this little water source. And he kept getting signals somewhere in there. And then eventually he kind of wandered over the, the little pool that is just kind of as big as this table. You know, it's maybe like four feet by seven feet. And the caller was in the pool at the bottom. Wow. <laughs> and so he fished it out and kind of like, rem- you know, remembered that, cataloged that in his brain. Like, huh, I guess, you know, the bear was getting a drink or something and it popped off. What, what timing kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so that was, I think, early 2000s, maybe 2003, if I remember, that that ex- experience happened. And then in 2000. 13, 14, during the initial meetings for the National Geographic Project, Nick Nichols showed a photo and a video about this watering hole in India where these tigers would come, and this specific tiger eventually, like, lowered itself down in this pool and, like, sat there, like, sleeping. And then you can literally, like, hear, like, people's voices in the distance maybe like a dog barking or something and the tiger like opens its eyes and gets out of this this pool it's very hot part of this this in india and so the tiger was cooling off and it reminded carrie huh there's this pool in yellowstone where i found this caller and he relayed this information to nick after he saw that video and so nick sent me in initially i think it was in august my um went out with a park service uh, employee on the bear management team, Nate Bowersock, and checked out this pool and kind of like went in and scouted it, put up a couple cameras just to see what was happening as a potential and came back. Actually, I think I was with my dad for the second visit. He came in with me, always had to be in twos or threes and uh, came in and, and the camera had been messed with and was all like muddied up. And I was both excited and heartbroken thinking that the thing happened you know in wildlife with photography and imagery you don't know how often things happen and so you think like maybe this only happens once in a blue moon once a year one bear came by and that you know you don't know and so i thought that i had missed it you know i was super frustrated you know camera traps are a lot of frustration because you don't have full control over the the equipment the picture the batteries the card whether it just gets a bunch of false triggers or if animals mess with it, you know, simply like an elk coming by and licking the lens or a bear coming by and rearranging it uh, is, you know, you're you're done basically in terms of getting the imagery you want. And so I actually, yeah, I um, didn't even look at the footage, just saw that it was moved, was kind of happy that something came by. I don't know if it went in the water or not. And up bringing the footage back, um, bringing the card back, gave it to Nick. And I remember sitting in the living room in Park Service Housing in Mammoth. And Nick was like scrubbing through the footage. And he downloaded to the computer. And he was like, oh, man. Like, yeah, like, holy smokes, Ronan. Like, there's a bear in the bathtub. Like, the camera had been rearranged, but you could still see part of the this little pool. Wow. And this bear went in and was like fully submerged up to its shoulders, neck and head just above kind of like splashing around like you know a dog getting in a pool and, and cooling off and and so then we just went took it to another level put some more cameras out um and it turned into this really fascinating 
localized spot where black bears, grizzly bears, males, females, with all ages of cubs, you know, fresh little tiny cubs of the year coming in and swimming around, splashing around. Some of these big male grizzly bears got in just like that tiger, sat down, just their heads up for, you know, I think 20 minutes or so one was in there and then like falling asleep, um, just soaking in, in this pool. And again, it's not heated, it freezes in winter. Um, and so, yeah, I did a couple seasons. I got funding and permission to do another fall there and put out more cameras. Um, so yeah, it's this really fascinating pool and kind of this little, it's part of the joy of camera trapping and and wildlife discovery, you know, bear biologists didn't know this was happening, you know, kind of at this level with this many bears and in this place and, and Carrie and some others are still doing research there and, and putting out cameras and being, being curious and trying to understand like what, what's this behavior about? What's going on? Hey, self-care is important for yeah. all yeah. species. Yeah, exactly. I, I just, that is such a great story and what a, what a wonderful discovery. Mm. Um, I like this idea in my head that the first bear that went there after you put the first camera up was like, excuse me, yeah. I'm yeah. having private, private bath time. Yeah, I exactly. <laughs> don't, yeah. I'm going to rearrange this for you. Yes. Um, no, that's great. Thanks for sharing that story. Mm. Um, so since, the National Geographic Yellowstone Project. How has your work evolved? You know, it sounds like that was a tremendous learning experience in addition to just being a really wonderful experience. But, you know, did you start after that doing anything differently? I think I did everything differently after that. You know, it was, you know, Nick is a mentor and just kept drilling in as well as the editor, Kathy Moran, about storytelling. And it's, you know, about the series of pictures. It's about photo essays. It's about combining the imagery, not just single picture gets you in the door or it gets the reader or the viewer curious, but the impact is in the series. And so trying to figure out how to make pictures that are truly about storytelling, covering as many of the angles and bases literally and figuratively as you can. And so every story that I approach now is, is yeah, there's the animal component. And that's what drew me into photography in, in the beginning was just observing wildlife and being, being a naturalist. But now a lot of what I do is there's a, you know, a huge component, if not the main components, about people, about humans, and about their interaction with the landscape, if it's about a place or that species, if it's about an animal. And ultimately that was and is still a big learning process and turning point in the sense that conservation is not about managing animals, it's about managing people and how people choose to engage with, how they choose to resource conservation projects or you know, how, how they decide to care about something or not. Mm-hmm. And that is what essentially in the modern era with the capacity of modern humans Um, that's what conservation is, is is how do we shape human values and in a way that is, you know, beneficial for humans and and wildlife, you know, humans and landscapes. And so that a lot of what I do now is in that space. That's kind of the education piece is a lot of what I lean into now. It's not just about pictures. You know, I still at the core, a scientist, I feel like a biologist and 
I see you know, the biodiversity crisis and trying to contribute some positive change through the skill sets that I have developed through photography and film. And so I, you know, I just use these visual tools as the, as the entry point. Um, but really, it's, it, to me, it doesn't stop at the images. It's about that's just the hook um, to get people in, to get people interested. Um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's tricky. It's challenging. I, I constantly am trying to kind of reevaluate the type of work that I do and how I do it. You know, I, I have a museum exhibit that's traveling now about wolves. It was in Jackson, Wyoming last year. It's in Bend, Oregon now. And it's become a really fascinating and new avenue for me to communicate these complex issues around wolves. Um, and it's comparing wolves in the human dominated landscape in the greater Yellowstone to wolves in the wolf dominated landscape of the high Arctic in Canada. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole different kind of experience for people coming through this physical space and tons of detailed captions and writing. We worked on it for a couple of years with national geographic. And then I organize, you know, panel discussions and opening talks and kids programming. So kind of doing this whole, educational package along with the visuals of the wolves. And um, so I, I'm constantly trying to kind of explore new ways of, of communicating and storytelling. Yeah. Um, we think about climate change a lot as being this you know, huge existential crisis and communicating about climate change is really difficult because it's scary and it's huge and it's overwhelming. Um, so, you know, if you, are showing people images of wolves in the Arctic, you know, how do you feel like that? Do you feel like that's like a hook for getting people to care about something very specific so that you can also introduce these broader concepts of issues like climate change? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's spot on. It's essentially trying to pull people in kind of a roundabout way to what's happening in the Arctic. You know, it's, um, Sometimes people can turn off about kind of really challenging human interest stories. There's a whole section of the public, it seems, that you, know, you, can, you can pull them in through wildlife, through kind of this, quote, like innocent subject matter where it's, you know, the wolves aren't creating climate change or, you know, the musk oxen or these other animals, polar bears that are kind of struggling with this changing environment. And so... There's a lot of amazing coverage of the human challenges that are happening in the high Arctic with indigenous cultures that are losing land and losing ice and losing hunting access and you know just everything that comes with climate change and the human landscape. And my skill set is in the wildlife space and in kind of the kind of going back to my dad's teachings of the outdoor experiential learning. Like a lot of what I do, a lot of my skill half of it is just like getting there and being comfortable and staying there for a long time in just some uncomfortable places. And so pulling people in, embedding with a family of wolves and I did a three part series for national geographic wild uh, on TV about this family of wolves in the Canadian high Arctic is another entry point to add to the conversation about climate change. People can, relate to these wolves potentially if they have turned off maybe to some of the human stories they can be like oh okay this climate change is actually affecting these animals 
that are like us trying to make a living on the landscape. Um, so it's kind of a, another entry point to talk about climate change, um, where you get people, you just, I mean, again, you're just communicating a story. You know, these are wild family lives that live in this place that a lot of the world doesn't understand, has never been, never will go, you know, above 60 degrees north or so. Mm-hmm. Most of the world lives much further south than that. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to highlight places that are really far away as well, that are really far away from, you know, the actual control of the people that are going to be watching it. But it's important, I feel like, because it's, you know, what we do at the Southern Latitudes, what we do here and further south in terms of industry and, and carbon emissions affects the poles drastically. I mean, the Arctic's warming four times the rate of the rest of the world. And, you know, there's that number changes seems like year to year, just discovering like, oh, how, how fast it's changing. Um, and so being able to highlight stories that are at kind of the, the leading edge of climate change is really important. So speaking of getting comfortable being in a place for a long period of time, in your experience, are the kind of best or most exciting or most impactful shots that you've gotten the result of a lot of meticulous planning, or are they the things that have happened a little more spontaneously? It's both, I feel like. There's the initial kind of preparation of being in the place. So, you know, there, let's say in Yellowstone, there was a little window of a couple weeks where the Park Service gave myself and Nick access to Hayden Valley. Um, it was in March. So it was a low snow year, 2014-15. It was open to admin travel, so Park Service employees um, could drive on the road because it was clear and open, but it wasn't open to the public. And all this stuff's happening all winter long in Yellowstone um, in terms of wildlife. And so you know, we have the equipment, we have the skill, we have the preparation, we have the ability to sit in the snow for, you know, days at a time. And we, we've had the access. And so there were these bison carcasses that had fallen, the bison that had fallen through the ice in winter and drowned on the Ellison river. And then a shallow section kind of, they ran aground, so to speak. And these male grizzly bears know about this site and they kind of wake up early, um, and go troll the river corridor and and look for a, a meal. And then they'd kind of, pull these carcasses to the shore to make it easier for them to feed on. And then there were several wolf packs that were using those carcasses as well, feeding on them. That's like kind of the baseline presence and skill. And then access is huge. That's kind of everything with photography um, is having that access and being granted permission to, to do the work. And then the rest of it, you know, again, half is probably just like there and, and luck. Um, you can't control what animals do. Um, pretty much every all the time at least the style of photography that I do is just be there and and wait and document Um, so that yeah again access is kind of everything there's a lot of these projects where it's just with people you know the goal for for me and the work that I do with with wildlife is to find an animal that I can spend 24 hours with and walk 360 degrees all around it at close proximity all the time that's kind of the dream. And same with people. Like, you get access to telling a story about a person's life and 
ultimately you want to be able to photograph them while they're sleeping, let's say. Like have that level of access and trust because the best pictures are made that way, you know, with proximity and time. You know, I, I don't want to try to make an image about an animal in, you know, two weeks or something like that or in a day going out. There's just, there's seasonality, there's behavior, there's breeding season, there's, you know, a lot of complexity to their lives. And so spending that time is what National Geographic has offered. And it's kind of, it's the dream for making images. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like the the more prepared you are, the more opportunities you have for luck to show up as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think is the most difficult species of wildlife to photograph in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Is there anything you haven't captured yet that you'd like to? I mean, wolverines are brood are just, come on, they're super hard. Uh, you know, and they're, they're just so, such low densities they exist at. So not a lot on the landscape in certain areas. I think there's an estimate of like 300 in the lower 48, something like that. And that includes, you know, the Northern Rockies from the GYE up north through Glacier and then some in the Cascades, but yeah, some in Idaho too, but that's kind of, that's it. They're just like, they're these crazy little weasels that do some wild stuff. Um, it's a Wolverine way, the book by Doug Chadwick, great entry point to talk, learn about Wolverines. Yeah. I've just seen a few of them in, uh, in Glacier, just up in Logan pass, kind of just bombing around on the snow, doing their thing. Uh, that's one that's, that would be very hard. There's only a few records in um, Yellowstone over the years of Wolverines. Lynx, never seen one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, they have Lynx in Yellowstone. A least weasel, the smallest weasel. Uh, I've never seen one. I found a dead one. I see tracks. But, uh, yeah, we have three small weasels, long-tailed, short-tailed, and then least. Mm-hmm. And the least is like this little meat-seeking missile that is like turns all white in winter, doesn't take, doesn't keep the black tip on the tail like the other two species, and I've never never seen one. Yeah. Like how little? How little are we talking? Um, I feel like their body is maybe like under eight inches, wow. and then a couple more with the tail. I mean, they're they're really small. Yeah, just like a rodent specialist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just like a snake with legs. <laughs> They just go into the holes after the rodents. It's kind of a nightmare for if you're a small furry thing. (laughs) Um, So I know you've done work with trail cameras as well. Um, How do you decide where to put up a trail camera? And how does that compare to your more traditional wildlife photography? Yeah, trail cameras and camera traps, they are kind of this uh, love-hate tool that use in landscape, um, love them because it offers, you know, 24 hour coverage of, of pictures happening in this specific place on the landscape that, you know, I could be sleeping and I'm kind of like working, uh, in the sense that there's this camera or a camera system or a few cameras that are out there taking pictures if something's happening. And then, um, the hate relationship is that you're not in control. You're setting up, you know, if it's a nocturnal species, like I've done recently with some camera trapping with beavers. And so they're mostly nocturnal. They come out of the water at night and find a tree or, you know, little saplings and, and chew on them. And so trying to photograph them. Um, yeah, so your, your camera, motion trigger, light system, 
all trying to make it hardy. It's got to be obviously waterproof, weatherproof, cow proof sometimes if that's possible. Um, you're just trying to avoid all of these things that could happen. Um, but the, the reward is just, you know, it's amazing. You, you can see these animals that literally we never see, you know, like wolverines or lynx um, or, you know, beavers doing stuff in the dark. It's, it's not possible to see for us. So choosing locations, you know, there's kind of like two different types of camera traps, kind of in my, my view. There's the trail camera trap or, or trail camera where it's like an animal passing by on a, on a game trail. And you get, you know, a lot of different um, kind of opportunities. You can get a lot of different species. You know, Charlie Hamilton James has this cool series of, of images from a trail down in Grand Teton with, like, the Grand Teton mountain in the background. Um, and, you know, there's black bear, grizzly bear, there's mountain lion, there's deer. So it's just kind of, it's kind of this cool census, this visual census. And it's, you know, composed and it's with a big professional camera traps. So like we were using like Canon 5D Mark IVs or, you know, something like a, a single lens reflex camera or now, you know, mirrorless camera that's put in this box and then having flash. So it's a really high quality image at the end. And so that's kind of, yeah, the trail camera literally is uh, one of the styles. And then there's another style that I really try to go for a lot is like the behavioral camera trap. And so that is going to be at some sort of a location on the landscape, back to beavers, a tree that they've been chewing on and working on, you know, let's say a big cottonwood tree that's, you know, maybe like four foot in diameter. It's going to take them months or even years to work on. And so setting up there, trying to get the lighting right, trying to get the image, visualize the image, visualize where the beaver is going to be and facing and how it's going to be chewing and setting up a camera for that. So that's more of like behavior, you know, trying to get, so beavers, let's say, or wolves, if they're social animals, trying to get multiple individuals in a photo, in a camera trap photo. Like that's kind of the, for me, that's the ultimate for behavior where, you know, maybe there's a couple beavers chewing on the, on the tree or, you know, with wolves you have, I've put cameras on carcasses. So that's like a guaranteed spot where animals are going to come and for wolves that if that's your subject um you try to create this you know i've i've with wolves a lot of times they're not, they don't deal with they don't handle flash they're like i mean they barely handle the camera like around here wolves are very shy they're hunted they're trapped in or outside of yellowstone national park um and so a lot of the wolves even in yellowstone are wary of, of human things and human scent because they leave the park for you know maybe five percent of their time and they can get hunted and trapped and so they're they're scared of people which is good but it makes it hard to, to take pictures of them and so I, a lot of times with wolves i strip the camera system down to no flash just ideally like a single box with a motion sensor on the box so you're just like putting this one thing on a landscape ideally it would be quiet you know like a mirrorless system and then taking thousands of pictures so it's it's different than like the trail sets of cameras you're like going for like one moment or you know you get like two or three fast photos maybe but it's like you have a beam break which is a, a infrared beam that when it's broken it triggers the camera and it's a very specific place and you light it accordingly with the animal facing a certain direction but with these kind of like strip down sets of cameras around carcasses or, or you know 
the beaver thing, it's kind of like you're going for a lot of a lot of hits. So you're trying to like create and get all the bodies. And if it's, you know, I've put them on carcasses where you get like, there's like eight wolves that are moving around and like half the pictures are, you know, a mess of bodies and fur or someone's sitting on the camera or, you know, they're, they're blocking things. But sometimes you get, let's say layering, let's say like a, a wolf is standing in front of the, the camera, but then you can see past its foot, two faces, eyeballs, other wolves doing things. And, and then you get kind of this, the magic of this composition that happens and you can predict some of it, but a lot of times it's just, it's a surprise. So bathing bears aside, what is one of the most unexpected things that you have found in your footage after the fact? Well, yeah, with, with the bear bathtub specifically, you know, we were there to, to try to get photos and videos of bears, but then like elk were coming and visiting and there was this one, um, you know, bull elk that's in the water and just splashing around, um, for a little while. And then this cow elk came in and just kind of went like frisky, like got the zoomies and was like stomping and splashing, like, you know, it's all muddy and like kicking stuff all over the cameras and, you know, it was just having a, she was having a fun time, I guess, just like splashing around and romping. Um, there were, you know, a bunch of different birds. There were Clark's nutcrackers coming down. We had some pine grosbeaks, some some flickers, um, some crossbills. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, yeah, you know, fun little surprise with all these other animals that were visiting it. And you know, we'd get even, you know, a big male grizzly comes, and then just like five minutes later, ten minutes later there'd be like a black bear with three cubs of the year. And she would come in and she could smell that he was just there. But I don't know, it was an interesting kind of, like we never saw any territorial disputes at the bathtub. Um, you know, they're going up high elevation that time of year, a certain percentage of the bears in the GYE utilize white bark pine. And this was a white bark pine forest. And a lot of the bears, grizzly bears included, um, and black bears will take advantage of the red squirrels behavior of being just like a busybody. That's red squirrels spend the whole summer, um, going up and dropping a, um, pine cones and then peeling them and bringing the nuts, pine nuts down into a midden into like a underground cache, like just like a mess of tunnels that they create. Um, and they store, you know, tens of thousands of pine nuts, you know, high fatty, high calorie protein snack. And the bears can sniff those out. And then bears have big claws for digging and will dig up these caches. And so they get all dirty, they get thirsty, uh, and then they come and kind of check out this, this bathtub. So it's like, it seems like there was, you know, it's kind of a surprise that there wasn't like a bear that would be kind of king of the tub, so to speak, and um, didn't exist. They were kind of probably these seasonal movement bears that were coming up into this area just for that time of year in the fall and then going back down lower elevations to hibernate or how they did it. So that was, that was kind of surprised with just like how much variety, how much behavior and kind of interaction you could glean from just these cameras being out there. Hmm. Sounds like a party. Yeah. <laughs> so you have also done a lot of wildlife film work, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the difference in the creative process there? Um, 
do you approach filming different than photography? And, you know, do you find yourself preferring one over the other? I've always balanced both in projects. Like I feel like there's a lot of value and impact to a still frame, to, to a photo moment that's frozen. Whoever's looking at it has to kind of sit with it. It's quieter. It's a bit more contemplative. It can be impactful. It can be a loud image. It can be kind of gritty, but it's still like this moment. And that's something that you know, we can't do as humans. I mean, we could look at something and close our eyes, you know, and try to just like hold the visual in our mind, like a still photo. But in general, especially with like motion or things happening, you know, or these camera traps, it's like, okay, that's a moment that I, a physical human could never experience. I could never be under a wolf at a carcass or at the bear bathtub while grizzly bears are taking a bath. It wouldn't, wouldn't happen. The behavior wouldn't be there. They'd be scared. And then video film is, you know, it's, it's how we see, it's how we see the world, unless it's, you know, slow motion or, or whatever it is. Um, but it's how we see the world. So there's really, there's power to both in a way that is very unique. And I, th- you know, I think, you know, video gets the closest to actually pulling the human viewer into a place and immersing them. You know, there's motion, there's sound, there's this experience that is tapping into more senses than just kind of like the, the still frame does in a way. The still frame can be very emotional in itself in the power of that moment. But with video, it's, it's trying as best we can to translate a place. You know, having that motion, sound, you know, the movement of an animal, how they communicate, how they talk to each other, the sounds of it, even with, with people. You know, you can write a description of a person. Next step up, you take a photograph of the person, a portrait. And the next step up for kind of like capturing their true essence in a way is like a, you know, interview or them just kind of speaking, talking, mannerisms, movement, how that, how that person wants to portray themselves is kind of how video, one of the powers of video that I am drawn to in comparison in, um, to photos, you know, you can, you can balance a lot with each, but, um, but yeah, I, I kind of do. Yeah. I always have a video component with all of my projects. Um, and you know, I've been filming in 2021 and 2022. I did a couple sequences for planet earth three just came out in the UK. It'll air here in another month or so. Um, but chimps in Uganda in kind of human dominated landscape. And then the same family of Arctic wolves in Canada. And that'll be, you know, that's a five to 10 minutes, let's say sequence. So sequence is just like a clip about a subject within an hour long episode. And that's kind of how some of these bigger blue chip style, they call them natural history series are, are done where they reach, you know, tens of millions of people. And it's this way to kind of like, again, it's like a taste, like draw people in, you know, again, it's 10 minutes, but, uh, you can, you can do a lot in that with, with the craft of a video and it reaches. I mean, that's the thing is like a lot of content consumed is video. So again, if my goal initially for this work with photography, it's kind of mission driven, impact driven photography is one piece, but then video is kind of this other piece that can you know, reach a lot, a mm-hmm. much wider audience though. 
Yeah. 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 No, that's a really, that's a really interesting perspective on the, the different roles of those different tools. Um, you mentioned a bit ago that sort of the power of a camera trap would be putting you somewhere that you can't be like under a wolf, but what, uh, what are some memorable moments or a memorable moment that you've actually witnessed when you've been out in the field with your camera? Yeah, there's, I, you know, the, the Arctic is a place where a specific location in the Arctic where I go to wolves aren't hunted or trapped. Um, there's no human competition on the landscape, which is kind of the crux of where the, the human wolf relationship, um, changed. Um, and therefore you're able to kind of like the dream subject, you know, chimpanzees that I've worked with that are habituated to human presence, meaning that they've been exposed to humans over decades and they don't, they'll fall asleep in your presence and you can walk around and they'll keep sleeping. Um, and the wolves are like that in this place in the Arctic where I go on Ellesmere Island. And, you know, it's somewhat kind of like going to Antarctica where the penguins don't care because they're just like, oh yeah, we, we don't really know what you're about. We didn't really generationally evolve to fear you. Um, it's like that with the wolves. Um, and so basically what it allows for is 24 hour observations of their life. It's helped by the fact that the summer when I'm mostly there, it never gets dark. The sun doesn't set for four months. And so literally you can follow them all night. Um, the sun's still up and there's a memorable scene that, uh, played out over the course of this summer that I was watching these wolves while, while I was filming for planet earth three, where when I first found the wolves, they were, um, there was one wolf that had a really awful kind of almost like a golf ball sized hole in his, um, chest cavity in his lungs. He had a sucking chest wound, like a, a really horrific injury that I assumed had happened because of a muskox horn, which is their main prey animal. It's a big goat related shaggy Arctic specialized animal. And they have really sharp horns and that's their defense and, and wolves can get hooked. And just, you could hear air kind of like wheezing in and out. He was in a lot of pain. You could tell just kind of like stiff necked when he'd lay down, he wasn't really sleeping. And I didn't know if he was gonna make it. Uh, it just seemed like one of these awful injuries. And over the course of the summer, so this was two and a half months um, that I was there, you know, he would lick it a little bit. Other pack mates would come and lick it and just kind of keep it cleaned up. And it started to heal over those months. And, you know, he never, he never was left behind. He would be in the back of the pack when they would travel. He would still do 30 mile days with, the, with his family but he wasn't playing and he wasn't really helping in the hunts because of his injury. And then over the months, he started to play more. He was sleeping better. His wound was getting smaller. Um, he started to be kind of at the front. Some of these hunts where he'd be happy to lead, he was feeling strong. And it was a pretty amazing moment of resilience of kind of this care that happens. You know, the other wolves would one wolf would come by and, and lick it for, you know, five minutes. And he would sit there at the end and like lick their face for, you know, like a minute afterwards, kind of in this like sweet little 
human social animal bonding where, you know, it feels good. You release dopamine and serotonin. Like there's these feel good, um, hormones that, uh, come out of that physical interaction. So he was kind of, you know, in a way kind of thanking the others for helping him out. Um, and it was, it was amazing to see that what animals are capable of in the natural world, even these devastating injuries, a sucking chest wound, having a lung collapse as a human, like, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what would happen if you didn't get care for that. It would likely get infected. That's kind of a lot of what takes us out um, is infection. So that was certainly a memorable scene and moment and something that allows you to understand these individual lives, you know, in, come from the research background where a lot of it is kind of the population, the sum of, we kind of generalize the population with thousands of observations of their behavior. But there's equally and more of these little moments in lives that happen that are, you know, there isn't a sum of kind of that injury, let's say, to, to like summarize, oh, this is what happens when an animal gets a lung puncture. And so you're observing in this way that is kind of a, it's a, a new way to kind of understand animals' lives when they're not scared of you and you can gain little insights and anecdotes and they become these stories that yeah, help to pull people into being empathetic and understanding and wanting to learn more. Yeah, I would never have thought that that would be a survivable injury. So Same, it, yeah, I, I, I was expecting him to decline. Yeah. And I just saw him this summer. He's, so that was, when that happened, that was 2021. Um, so yeah, 2023, just saw him this summer. The wound actually opened up again. Really? Yeah, but he's, it doesn't seemingly, he might be walking around with one lung, uh, but it doesn't seem to affect him. I mean, he was playing and doing all, you know, being a wolf, but yeah, still kind of like wincing every now and then. It wasn't fully painless. Wow. Yeah. What an incredible thing to have witnessed. Um, Ronan, do you... Do you have a favorite image that you've ever captured? There's a handful of images I've mentioned a few times, like when an animal trusts humans enough to fall asleep around them, that offers just a, a rare, quiet, subtle, but I think they become really powerful images because most of what we see in wildlife photography or film, you know, video, planet Earth is like animals are doing stuff all the time is is kind of the, the narrative. And a lot of those, if you have only 10 minutes to pull people in, you're probably not going to have any minutes of sleeping wolves, <laughs> let's say. Uh, but that's most of what they do. Most animals sleep a lot. <laughs> Uh, you know, all mammals, social animals, highly intelligent with, you know, large brains, us included, we have to sleep a lot and reset. And wolves are the same. They travel long distances. They ask a lot of their bodies and their kind of, their social minds are complex enough that, you know, they also need 10 to 15 hours of nap time. Anybody that has a dog is probably pretty aware of this sort of thing. Uh, they work hard, but then they sleep hard. <laughs> um, those images, I think, are, you know, they're, again, they're quiet. They're not like a takedown predation moment where wolves are hunting something. But I think that they're equally as important to remind people that a lot of animals lead quiet lives. Um, that there are, you know, in the case of wolves, 
they have an incredible stamina, they travel long distances and they bump into prey. And the bumping into prey, the physical like mouth on prey is really just like, you know, 1% of their life is that, that moment of kind of intensity that is the culmination of all that they have evolved to do in a lot of ways. But there's this other element, you know, so there's some images from the Arctic where this polygon pack is, you know, they're sleeping. There's maybe like someone's chewing on a bone nearby. There's a pile of puppies and they're asleep. And there's kind of this just quiet scene that's happening. And they are trusting and allow for me to be able to walk around and take pictures of them in, in that moment. And I think that those are some of my favorite images. Yeah. I love that answer. (laughs) What is your hope for the impact that wildlife photography can have on conservation? How would you kind of distill that for yourself? Hope for me with the images that I create is that they'll reach an individual person, touch them in a way emotionally, Curiosity, awe, just being in awe of something is, is an amazingly powerful emotion and, and tool to pull people in. And to kind of, you know, a lot of the what I'm focusing on now with like the human wolf relationship is to help showcase like possibilities. You know, a lot of photojournalism can be covering conflict. It's very loud it's very photogenic whether it's you know war photography conflict photography in the literal sense or you know where wolves are killed because of a management issue or where where wolves are hunted like it's a that's a that's a loud image that's like hits people in a way that's can be kind of triggering in one way or another but i'd like to give people like like an option like a creative outlet like um hey there's this whole group of people in Europe that live alongside wolves that, you know, there's 3000 wolves in Spain, 3000 wolves in Italy. Yes, there's high conflict. There's a lot of low prey base, wild prey. So there's kind of only livestock that's left. So there's, you know, there's a huge conflict in France and Italy with sheep and wolves. Um, but it's kind of, they're, they're, figuring it out in certain ways. There's different practices that are used. Um, you know, having shepherds, having livestock guard dogs. There's a lot of growers, livestock growers that use those in the West. In wolf country, in predator country, they've always done that because that's kind of how you do it. Um, so trying to showcase like hopeful stories in a way that can impact somebody who's kind of curious about, about wolves and, and coexistence. Like just, if people don't know what's possible, then they maybe don't know how to dream about it mm-hmm. um, and be creative about it. So that's kind of the hope is that I kind of offer some creative thought to dealing with potential conflict because ultimately nobody wants conflict in their life um, on the landscape. You know, people are just trying to make a living a lot of times and as well as the wildlife. And so it's just, yeah, coexistence is about that, how to like minimize conflict. Yeah. I like that you mentioned awe. I, I feel like I keep hearing that there's a lot of emerging research on just how powerful that experience is for people. And it feels like there's a lot of potentially untapped potential surrounding the experience of awe. 
yeah, there's a book that I have started listening to. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like the science of awe. Mm-hmm. Maybe halfway through it. Yeah, and one of the writers that informs a lot of my thinking related to the natural world is Barry Lopez. And he talks a lot about awe and agape and these like these powerful emotions that just you know, they just floor us. And it's in the in a beautiful way that's you know, seeing a beautiful sunset, stuff that leaves you speechless has this emotional connection and power that you will never forget when you've been in awe. And I think it's one of those can be a rarer emotion. Um, and the, the modern human world, like we try to hijack that with kind of all of our tools, you know, like mm-hmm. motion pictures, um, you know, cinema, movies, TV, concerts, you know, they're just like, it's like a awe arms race to try to like blow your mind. Uh, but the natural world's been doing that forever. You know, the night sky is just, I mean, that's what awesome is, is it's just, it's incredible. And I think that it's always available, mm-hmm. you know, the natural world in many ways. Um, I mean, I say that most people are urban, so, but you can still go out and to parks and um, find, find that. I mean, the highest density of like peregrine falcons, I think, is in New York City. And I've been in like Central Park and just like looking up at pigeons just getting like poofed by peregrines that's awesome that's awesome (laughs) i recently heard i wish i could remember where um that one definition of awe was the experience of like utter unself-consciousness and i like that yeah i liked that too this just like in this world where we spend so much time sort of thinking about ourselves and our place in it and what we're doing and how we look and who we are and what we're buying and all of the stuff that to have this sort of gift of an almost out of body experience of just being amazed by something. And like you said, that the natural world holds that for us also kind of amazes me because, you know, we are part of it and the night sky, you know, in, one sense should be this like incredibly mundane thing. Like it's just there. And so it feels like such a gift that we get to look at something like that and have an experience of awe and amazement. Yeah. I like that kind of just like shatters the ego. Mm -hmm. You're just present there. To me, it's the most kind of like centered balanced present times that I experience are when I'm immersed in these kind of natural systems this last trip to the Arctic, I was there for two weeks with a science team looking at this climate change relationship to muskoxen. And then for two weeks, I was by myself and set up a little base camp in this beautiful little sandstone, rocky area. I could cache food under rocks. I didn't have to worry about it. When I left during the day, I would go down in this big basin and hike maybe 10 to 15 miles a day, check with these wolves that I spend a lot of time with, hang out with them for days, follow muskox in, watch Arctic fox kits play around camp. And there was no human sounds. There, every sound had a purpose in the natural world. Every, you know, the long-tailed Jaeger call, the bird that kind of alarms when a fox comes by or when a human walks by, they kind of die bomb. And they have different calls for the land threats. They have different calls for territorial threats that are coming in, other Jaegers coming in. And you just start to, for me, it's kind of this unraveling of kind of the, the husk of the modern human world that kind of 
blocks us as modern humans from that experience. Um, you know, I had physical back pain and hip stuff going into this trip and came out of it. And I was like, I don't have my back pains. Got what? Yeah. Stress, anxiety, kind of these things that we're so kind of accustomed to in the modern world all just kind of started to chip away. And it was, yeah, it was, that's, yeah, that's something that I always go back to is the kind of baseline reset in the natural world and finding kind of that attunement um, and just the presence of it. So yeah, it's a yeah. magical thing. Totally. Okay. Ronan, we have a few listener questions for you. Fun. Okay. First question. Dan from Idaho asks, generally how many hours filming in the wild does it take to produce a one hour documentary for wolves, bears, mountain lions? The Arctic Wolf series that myself and a team made for National Geographic, it's three TV hours, so each one is like 45 minutes of actual footage. I think we filmed somewhere around 200 hours. Wow. For that. Um, So, yeah, the ratio of used versus unused is quite large uh, in the unused category. So yeah, it takes, same with a bare bathtub, you know, that was five months maybe total of like cameras out capturing footage. And we made a maybe five minute, three to five minute clip about it, you know, about that. So it's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's hard to me. It's like, we're trying to convey even in three hours, even in 20 hours, you couldn't actually convey what this place is and kind of their, their, the day-to-day life of an animal. Like I, even being there, I'm not seeing it all or capturing it all, even though I'm seeing physically seeing it. So yeah, it's always this kind of challenge. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. And same with photos. I mean, I think we published, uh, you know, 12 photos, let's say in the magazine article that I did on Arctic wolves. And I, Camera traps, that's tens of thousands of pictures right there. I think it was like 130,000 images. It's like my catalog from that three months. I can't even imagine what it would take to choose. Yeah. So, well, yeah, it's nice to have an editor. <laughs> you know, Kathy Moran, she's, she's amazing, and she goes through every frame. Unreal. Which is wild, yeah. Hmm. Okay, next question. Stephanie from Wyoming wants to know what your very first camera was. My, I think my mom has a, or had, I don't know if she still does, but like a a Minolta film camera. I feel like I borrowed that for the, the high school black and white class that I took, I think. But the first like camera that I bought right before I went to that Spotted Owl project in Yosemite was it was a Canon Rebel something it was a film camera just like a cheap small plastic body so I guess we'll call that my first camera good 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 okay next question which is sort of unintentionally I think a follow-up Liz from New York asks what camera do you use now currently I use a Canon R5 it's one of their new mirrorless systems. Uh, mirrorless is 
a huge advancement in photography for a lot of reasons, but one is that it has like opened up the access to photography. You know, digital did that to start just because it's like, you don't have to pay to get film produced. You can instantly see what your picture is so you can instantly learn and change and do that. With mirrorless, it's, it's that elevated. So the mirrorless means that literally you're kind of looking at a screen um, and your exposure is what you're gonna what you're seeing. So it's kind of like your phone, your cell phone. You take it out and you see the exposure. You know how light and dark things are. Is what the picture's gonna look like. And before you had to meter and try to like you know you had to have some understanding of whatever some technical stuff. But you know, I, I teach photo workshops with National Geographic and um, places all around the world, and we bring a kit of mirrorless cameras with us and. We hand them out. We do maybe 20 students. I've done them in Rwanda and Mongolia, um, all around the world where a lot of students have never seen a camera or picked up a camera. And with mirrorless, you just show them exposure compensation, lightening and darkening just with a wheel, a flick of the, of the thumb. And they can create these like incredible exposed images that would be very hard if you had to like meter, you know, if you had to try to predict, you'd be very frustrated. So mirrorless, great. No, I actually really appreciate you um, explaining that quick answer because <laughs> I was like, well, I take it there's no mirror, but that's yeah, not right. the extent yeah. of my knowledge. So that's that's mm. wonderful. Okay, um, Martin from Illinois asks, has your equipment ever failed in the field before, and if so, what did you do? Yeah, I've had a lot of equipment that's failed. Um, it's kind of part of the job, you know. You always bring a backup camera but I have flooded multiple cameras. So like a few in the Yellowstone project where I was trying to set up, I set up camera traps in the Lamar river in this section, um, where bison would cross. And it was in the fall during migration bison move in and out of Yellowstone by the thousands in the winter. And, and they, you know, stage in the fall. And there was, a, I left the camera too long and there was an ice jam, like an ice dam that, was created down river and it flooded this whole area and flooded these, these cameras and the whole system. And it was, uh, that I, they were national geographic. So I had to call them and they were understanding. They didn't, you know, they covered by insurance and maybe pay for things, but uh, good learning experience about that. Um, you know, I've had, a had a wolf steal a camera from me in the Arctic, like one that was right next to me at my feet. I was just kind of, didn't expect that she would be so bold. It was right when I first met this polygon pack that I've spent a lot of time with. And one of the wolves that I've called her bright eyes, she like very mischievous and, and uh, she darted in, grabbed this camera. It was like a one D Mark two, you know, big, like, I don't know, $8,000 camera with a lens that was also national geographics and had to like, yeah, it was this funny moment of, I found myself reactively like chasing her like I would a dog that just stole something. And then in the chasing, realizing, oh, I, I know this game. It's the keep away game. Mm-hmm. And it's only fun when you're being chased. And so I, like what I've done with dogs, you stop, turn around, and start walking away. And she was like, oh, you know, turned, started trotting behind me. I'm like, hey, like, I still have your thing. You want to play? And I kind of side-eyed her over my shoulder she got close enough. I turned and clapped really quickly and startled her and she dropped the camera and like darted away. I was able to get it back. So 
that was a disaster averted. Um, but yeah, it's kind of having a backup camera is just part of the part of the the job, especially if you're going to a really remote place. So that's a, that's a good advice. Backup camera, and then uh, UV like lens filters. Mm-hmm. Another one I've been saved many times where you face down, drop a lens or drop a camera, and that shatters, but not the actual front element of your lens, which is much worse. So. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that, that was a great story. Okay, just a few more follow-up, or I should say wrap-up questions for you. Any just wildlife photography tips for folks out and about around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, going to Yellowstone is great get this abundance and access and kind of landscape that's open across like the northern range of Yellowstone that's really amazing stuff you can see just from the road driving around um, but I think you know I brought up earlier but access is really the most important thing um, you can have all the cameras all the skill but if you don't know the subject or have access to the subject uh, you're not going to be able to make any pictures or make good pictures. So like for people who are interested in wildlife photography, you know, don't start trying to take pictures of wolverines, probably. Um, that would be very hard. Uh, you know, stuff that's more accessible around trying to like, you know, like um, there's parks where there's just tons of ducks or, you know, swans or, you know, stuff that's like kind of semi-captive or that it's like, gives you kind of opportunity to go there every day, different light and try to experiment and understand your equipment. Um, because ultimately when, if you try to go for harder stuff or if there's really rare events or things that are happening fast, you want to have a good familiarity with your, with your equipment, mm-hmm. um, so that you're able to make the right choices and not be frustrated at the end of it. Uh, with, you know, blurry pictures or dark pictures or stuff where you missed, missed it. Um, so yeah, getting to know, know your, know your camera. Um, and then people who can't afford it, it's great to hire guides in Yellowstone that are amazing. There's a lot of amazing photographers that are guides that work for various tour companies in Yellowstone that, and they know where to go and they know the animals and know that lots of natural history stories and geology and can kind of really immerse you in that place. That's, you know, that's any of the parks in Africa, you, you hire guides and you get a very amazing experience. It's kind of unique to the U.S. that we kind of get to go into our natural spaces, which is great, but um, alone, uh, without without guides, but it's still, it adds a whole lot. So that's just an option for people that want that or know that that's available. Okay, great. I like that. So it's know your equipment, and if you can, go with someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah, yep. Perfect. Um, what, are you, what are you currently working on? I am working on... Few different projects. One is a National Geographic magazine story about how beavers can help keep water on landscapes, especially in the arid western United States. Um, that's coming out. It's published next year, early next year. And I have a long-term project for National Geographic Society about human-wolf relationships around the world, and that'll be some travel to Europe and Asia. Um, next year yeah uh, and then a bunch of other stuff but that's those are the two kind of big things um yeah that museum exhibit in bend oregon and that goes to eugene oregon um next year and also portland as well oregon next year so it'll be there 
Perfect segue. What are some of the places that people can see your work? People can see my work. Um, Instagram is probably most used for me. Just my name, Rona Donovan. Um, National Geographic's published a handful of articles of my work. Uh, I have a recent article out in Montana Outdoors about great gray owls and the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks five-year survey for them. An article in Big Sky Journal coming out this month as well about wildlife watching in Yellowstone. Wonderful. Okay, final question for you, which is the same question that we ask all of our guests here on this podcast. Um, who is your conservation hero? I would say my conservation hero is getting back to the work of Barry Lopez. His approach to the human experience related to the natural world and conveying that to you know, a modern world, making it accessible, bringing people into indigenous lives and communities in the Arctic, for example, in Arctic dreams, um, as well as wildlife communities. And that feeling of awe is interspersed throughout so much of his writing that I feel like that's a really powerful way to draw people in who have never been to a landscape or visited a place is, you know, pick up Arctic dreams or, you know, the kind of the seminal work on the wolf human relationship is of wolves and men that he wrote in the eighties. I'll say Barry Lopez. Perfect answer. All right. Ronan Donovan, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was absolutely wonderful to speak with you. Likewise. Thank you. Another enormous thank you to Ronan for stopping by the podcast today and sharing his incredible stories from the field. We hope you feel inspired to use your own storytelling skills, whether it's photography, writing, painting, graphic design, public speaking, or any of the million other ways to speak up for the conservation issue that's near and dear to your heart. To see more of Ronan's work, you can check out his Instagram and website, both of which are linked in the show notes. If you'd also like to hear more about Ronan's work on Ellesmere Island with Arctic Wolves, we've added a link to Ronan's series, Kingdom of the White Wolf, which you can watch on Disney+. After we recorded this episode, Ronan sent over some footage of the bear bathtub that you can check out on our website. Spoiler alert, it's adorable. All right, now for the giveaway. By becoming a podcast supporter between now and December 31st, 2023, you'll be entered to win one of 10 available printed copies of the Yellowstone edition of National Geographic magazine. All you need to do is sign up and we'll put your name in the drawing for early 2024. You can access this contest via the link in our show notes as well, or on this podcast episode's page on the Greater Yellowstone Coalition's website. This magazine includes many stunning photos from Ronan and also features stories about the power of the park by renowned author David Quammen, the relationship between wildlife and the people who live here, and the geology of Yellowstone. Voices of Greater Yellowstone is a podcast by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a conservation nonprofit that works with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.